North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. This week on The Impossible State, we have an absolute treat, and we're going to talk about something different for a change than The Impossible State itself, North Korea. I have with me, as always, my great colleague, Dr. Victor Cha, and we also have a special guest, Dr. Giwook Shin from Stanford University, who is, of course, one of the leading experts in South Korea. And we're going to talk today to Dr. Shin about his new article, where he talks about what is going on in South Korea. Dr. Shin, of course, we're talking about your article that was published in July in the Journal of Democracy. Can you tell us what you wrote and why it's so important for our listeners to understand? First of all, thank you for hosting this podcast. And it's my honor to be on this program. And I'm sorry if I disappoint you by not talking about North Korea, but about South Korean politics. I think it's very important uh, to understand South Korean politics in order to understand North Korea issue or you know, alliance. And oftentimes I feel like uh, Washington uh, doesn't fully understand South Korean politics. So now going back to you know, four years ago, South Korea has political crisis uh, with impeachment of then President uh, Park Geun-hye. And President Moon Jae-in was elected as president uh, in the aftermath of impeachment. You know, like many others, I had really high hope that uh, Korean democracy will be maturing with new politics. And when Moon Jae-in uh, became president, he had high uh, approval rating, like uh, 70, 80%. I think that reflected uh, people's expectation for him and his government. But after three, four years, I think a lot of people, including myself, are very disappointed because rather than uh, maturing, Korean democracy is backsliding in many ways. So, you know, my main argument uh, in the article uh, is that South Korea is experiencing kind of a democratic depression, as in many other parts of the world. And what is really ironic about South Korea is that the democratic decline has been brought by the former activists, the very same people who fought for South Korean democracy in the past. Of course, South Korea is still run by the rule of law. I mean, there's no question. But my worry is that uh, the spirit and value of democracy is being undermined. And people may not notice that because the erosion is taking place slowly and gradually within the guise of the rule of law. So there is a Korean saying that uh, the light drizzle soaks you before you notice. And I think that's what's happening in Korea right now. And I think that's the main danger of the current situation uh, with Korean democracy. So, you know, this is not really a political critique of the ruling party or Korea. But it's more like an intellectual critical reflection on Korean politics today. 
Victor, I want to ask you to jump in here on this. Sure. It's great to have Duke on the show. Uh, like Andrew said, we're talking today more about South Korea than we are about North Korea, but I think we'll find a way to fit North Korea in there somehow. But yeah, I thought it was interesting to bring Duke on the show just because it, you know, when I read his argument, it's a very interesting argument. I had not heard it before, but I felt like it did reflect a lot of people's observations about what's going on in South Korea today. But he was able to explain it and put together an argument that really captured, I think, what people are feeling. The irony of it all, because as Gug said, I mean, we're talking about a government right now that really forged the path to democracy in the 1980s. These were the people that were out on the streets fighting for an open liberal political order. And so that, you know, there's that element of it, too. But you know, like I think as Gug suggested, I don't think that his argument is ideological. I understand that when he wrote it, that there were a lot of like conservatives who were emailing him and contacting him. But it's really an argument about, and it's not just Korea, it's an argument about how in many places around the world, we have democratic institutions, but the norms that are operating in those institutions are becoming less and less democratic, right? And so, you know, I think that's something that we're seeing happen in Korea. It's not just in Korea, but it's happening in Korea. And Gyuk has underlined this for us. Uh, as an important issue that we should be thinking about. So I, I want to ask you both, and Victor, you just alluded to this. Isn't there something ironic about a ruling government from a traditionally progressive pro-democracy party eroding democratic norms? And why is this happening? I think that's why it's very ironic, also kind of you know, interesting. Because, you know, first of all, it wasn't uh, easy to write this piece, you know, in Korea. I mean, you know, I wrote earlier version of this piece in Korean for a very popular uh, monthly Korean magazine. And then I expanded the article for the Western audience. And main difficulty is that, you know, Korean society is so highly polarized. So either you are in the conservative or progressive. That's why I want to make sure that uh, this is not a political critique. And I'm not trying to defend conservative, or I'm not trying to just criticize the government. But once again, uh, it's a critical reflection on, on Korean democracy. And you know, now you know, those uh, former activists, they are in power. But still, they are acting like uh, they are fighting against authoritarian regimes. And also, they claim kind of they are, you know, morally superior. So whatever they do, you know, they claim that's good. And the other side is kind of evil. So very clear ideological, you know, bifurcation in Korean politics. And that's why it's very hard to have any healthy, constructive discussions or debate. And you know, once again, when I wrote uh, this piece in Korea first, conservative, you know, they loved that. So you know, they sent me email, you know, gave me a phone call, and you know, saying thank you for writing this piece. But then that was not my intent. I'm, I'm more disappointed with conservative actually. So I hope that uh, they understand this larger context of this paper, Victor. Yeah, I mean, I think that what we're talking about is this distinction between, you know, democratic institutions and democratic norms. And the institutions are operating fine in Korea. You know, they're operating well. It's just that the norms of sort of consultation, consensus, most importantly, compromise, 
right? The polarized environment that Giuk is talking about just does not allow for this sort of reaching out and the, and the use of compromise. I mean, for most of our listeners, that would not sound too unfamiliar to them, particularly those living in Washington, D.C. That wouldn't sound too unfamiliar to them. Because we're constantly talking about our own erosion of democracy right. and our own polarization. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think as Gug talks about, it's polarization, but then it's polarization, as Gug talks about, that's fused with populism, right? Everybody is sort of representing, they feel like they're representing the people's will. And so that makes it much more difficult. So, you know, for the international community or for others who who don't follow this as well, you know, this is about Korea, but it's, you know, I think it's an argument that would resonate with a lot of other people who look at their own countries these days, you know, if they read this, they would be like, huh, that sounds pretty familiar to me. Right. So, you know, when I wrote uh, this piece uh, in Korea and I shared English translation with my colleague at Stanford, and as you may know, uh, there are many people in our place working on democracy worldwide, like Larry Diamond, Frank Fukuyama, Mike McFall, and so on. Then they're saying, oh, they were very surprised to hear that because, you know, they knew that a lot of uh, democratic uh, depression was going on you know, worldwide, but they thought uh, Korea, you know, was exception. You know, they thought Korean democracy was uh, functioning, you know, very well. And then when I saw the article that Korea is not really exception to this global tide of uh, democratic depression, then they were really surprised. And then they were urging me to expand uh, this article you know, for Journal of Democracy so that people uh, in the Western world, especially in Washington, they understand uh, what's going on uh, in Seoul. Victor, how do you think it's being received in Washington? Do you think Americans are paying attention? Why should this matter for the United States right now? So I think, I mean, part of the reason we wanted to bring him on is so that people could learn about the argument, because again, I think it's an important argument. I think it matters for DC and the broader community in a couple of respects. One is that in terms of how we look at policy issues in the alliance, and then the other is also how we look at policy on North Korea. So, I mean, just to give one example on North Korea, and Duke and I have not talked about this invest, so he may actually disagree with me, but... If we look at the issue, you know, an issue that is pretty international as we talk about Korea issues, and that is human rights, right? North Korean human rights. There has been an effort by the current government to take a different policy on North Korean human rights abuses that has been more forward leaning than we've seen in the past. So in other words, past progressive governments on North Korean human rights abuses have generally practice benign neglect, if you will. Um, it's a very complicated issue for them because it's North Korean human rights in a Korean domestic political context has become a conservative issue that they've used to bash North Korea with. Uh, and for progressives, it's not that simple. The, they understand the human rights problems, but at a higher plane, they're seeking reconciliation to basically lay the platform for improvements overall in conditions on the peninsula. But this government in particular has pursued what some have referred to as a rollback of North Korean human rights in terms of defunding certain organizations, certain movements, possibly also going after media, 
you know, all these groups, it started with balloons, people who are floating balloons into North Korea. And so the point here is not to criticize the progressive view on human rights, but, you know, this is something different. This is going beyond what we've seen in the past. And again, the question is, is this something that they do because they feel they have the right to rule? Or does this represent something that is a broader consensus in Korean society? I would argue, based on Gig's argument, that it is the former and not the latter, right? That this is based on this feeling of a right to rule and, you know, going further than past progressive governments by moving from benign neglect to actually an effort to roll back some of the human rights organizations and efforts that are taking place there. So I think, Victor, you brought uh, an important issue here, it may be uh, worthwhile comparing uh, Moon Jae-in to No Moo-hyun in a government uh, 20 years ago. And as you know, uh, you know Moon Jae-in was you know, chief of staff for you know, President No Moo-hyun. And you know, he was a very close friend of Mr. No. But I think uh, for those people in power now, I think they feel like No Moo-hyun government you know, failed in some way because they compromised. As you know that uh, No Moo-hyun spoke out about United States and taking very progressive policies. But in the end, actually, you know, he signed the Koros FTA. You know, he really did many measures to strengthen uh, U.S.-Korea alliance. And I think same thing about North Korea policy. But I think in the eyes of those people, uh, in power today. You know, many of them actually served in the Nomian government. In their view, the Nomian government you know, failed because they compromised. And I think they don't want to repeat the same mistake. I mean, that's why they're really trying to uh, change you know, power elite. They're really trying to change you know, political structure uh, in Korea. I mean, that's why they are much less willing to compromise so they are just willing to go all the way to you know, achieve their policy and political agenda. I think that's why there's a you know, huge difference between Do Hyun and, and Moon Jae-in. Uh, actually, right now, uh, there are some debates going on uh, in South Korea, but some of pro Do Hyun intellectuals, they were very disappointed with the current government. They became very critical voice against current regime. So I mean, that's why right now it's very different than uh, 20 years ago under the Nomian government. So if uh, those in Washington, if they believe that uh, Nomian and uh, Moon Jae-in are similar, I mean, to some extent, yes, uh, but then they are very, very different uh, in many ways. That's actually very interesting. Uh, you know, so the last time I was in government was when the Nomian government was there. And so I knew these folks quite well. Mm-hmm. I worked with them. I actually met President No several times in both Seoul as well as in Washington, D.C. And the way Giuk mentioned it, it it's actually true. Nomian as a person, because I also met him when he was a candidate one on one. And as a person, he had pretty strong views on the progressive side mm-hmm. in general about the alliance and about a lot of things. But then when he became president, like, you know, he did. They did chorus. I mean, he sent troops to Iraq, right? Under Nomi Hun, South Korea had the third largest ground contingent in Iraq, right? They were in northern Iraq, but it was the, behind the United States and Britain. It was the third largest ground contingent in Iraq. 
from a progressive government in South Korea, many of whose followers were openly critical of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. So I can see that the notion that they saw that group as compromise and, and on North Korea policy too, compromising, you know, there were times when we asked the Nobihan government to coordinate food and fertilizer assistance with movement in the six-party talks. And, you know, Nomihan personally didn't want to do it, but in the end, you know, the government did that. And so I can see why there's a reaction to that among the current group that's in government, all of whom, you know, were, you know, for the most part worked in the previous government and saw that sort of compromise and basically didn't see it as being successful. And then, you know, unlike uh, Nomihan, now the Munjin government, now they control three branches of the government, right? I mean, now the ruling party uh, controls you know, 60% of the National Assembly. And, you know, Moon Jae-in will have appointed, uh, I think, about 13 out of 14 judges in Supreme Court and eight of nine uh, judges in uh, Constitutional Court. So right now, uh, they are in, uh, really in control of power, and I think they are going to push all the way. And, you know, once again, going back to the democratic issue, you know, you know my, my main problem is that because they are so much in control of power, they're not really willing to compromise, or they are really not willing to you know, listen to different voice. So they are going to go all the way. That's why uh, I feel like the spirit and, and the value of democracy is being undermined. So I think that's a danger that Korea may be facing. It's fascinating. What do you think this means for the alliance? So I mentioned that now the ruling elite, many of them were former activists in 1980s. And they were fighting for democracy, but they also were quite uh, anti-American. Okay, their belief was that U.S. was supporting Korean dictatorship for you know, several decades. So without kind of liberation from American imperialism, I'm using their terminology, Korea wouldn't be able to achieve democracy. Of course, that's 30 years ago. And, you know, many of them obviously changed, you know, their views. But sometimes people don't change, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, like us. So probably deep in their minds, they are, you know, nationalists. And I don't think uh, they are necessarily happy with the current status of alliance with the United States. To be honest, I believe that, uh, let's say, if the U.S. pulls out uh, some troops from the Korean Peninsula, they may not mind, actually. You know, I think people saying that, why do we need so many U.S. troops uh, in the Korean Peninsula? You know, so, you know, they are quite nationalistic. And therefore, that's, I think, potential area of tension with the United States. Yeah, so I think, you know, the upshot in terms of the alliance is that, you know, given this very politically polarized environment in Korea, you know, the fusing of this polarization with using the language of populism, right, saying that this represents the people's will. And because they are all powerful right now, as you said, they hold all three branches of government, and they are unhappy with the compromise that the previous progressive government took, you know, this, particularly if there's a second Trump term, this all pushes in a very bad direction where there could be a narrative of disengagement on both sides mm -hmm. 
that there's no negative feedback. There's nothing pushing back against it, right? That's like really what we're most worried about. Yeah, that's what you're most worried because there's nothing in the system as Gib describes it in Korea to push back against that. And, you know, on our side, if Trump gets a second term, he's, as we've shown in our data, he's already predisposed to move in this direction because it's been a view he's held for 30 years. So, you know, whether we're talking about SMA, right, and the fight over how much more Korea should pay or OPCON transition, you know, the handing over wartime operational control to South Korean side, dissolution of CFC, Combined Forces Command, or even withdrawal of troops, this domestic environment, particularly in South Korea, if this were a ball that Trump started to roll in the second mm-hmm. term, there is little in the domestic Korean political context that would push back against it. Of course, there would be voices against it. But given this sort of democratic erosion, there'd be nothing to bolster those voices or give them an opportunity to articulate their interests in a way that would have to be politically answered by the current government. So I think that's the big implication for the alliance. And again, we want to bring this on the show because you don't hear this argument out there very often, and yet it's not something that's implausible at all. Right, so I think now we are discussing North Korea. <laughs> I mean, frankly speaking, uh, I don't think Mr. Moon or his people are like uh, Trump or his policy. However, they are trying to you know, make him happy because they thought there might be some opportunity to have some breakthrough regarding North Korea because now, you know, Trump is engaging in summit diplomacy and so on. So they're trying to really make him happy. But I think since last uh, Hanoi, things are not going uh, very well. And, you know, if you talk to uh, people inside Korean ruling elite, I mean, they complain that, you know, we cannot do anything about North Korea because of United States. You know, U.S. is blocking, you know, everything we try to do with North Korea. So on the surface, there seems to be some agreement between two sides. But I don't think they trust each other. And frankly, I don't know what's, what's going to happen because the Moon Jae-in government they have only like maybe a year and a half left in power. They are feeling that time is running out. They wanted to do something with North Korea before his tenure ends. But then, you know, U.S. is now in the election cycle. Then next year, either Trump to or new administration is coming in. And then once again, there might be some tension between uh, U.S. and South Korea over North Korean policy. That might affect the alliance as well. So that's something I worry about for next year. Yeah, there was a comment that was made by the recently onboarded new unification minister where he referred to the need to restart or create a new U.S.-Korea working group. Now, the U.S.-Korea working group was a group that was set up sort of at Began's level uh, to coordinate policy, integrating policy with U.S.-North Korea policy in the aftermath of the Singapore summit. And so what it essentially became was, you know, a non-public debate between the U.S. and Korea, where after the Singapore summit, the Koreans wanted to move faster on inter-Korean railroad, all these other things. And the U.S. wanted to, you know, slow things down. And so the fact that the unification minister called for a new working group was a clear signal that they were not happy with the United States. And so why that matters now, as Gug said, is that now, there's a narrative that's being created now in Korea that the U.S. is an obstacle 
to the government's efforts to engage North Korea. And that matters because even if Biden wins, like a new Biden administration, mm. they may come in thinking, look, okay, we're more normal, right? We'll consult. We believe in the alliance and think we're going to get things back to normal. But they may also not be that well aware of what's happening in South Korea and that the resistance that Trump may have felt from South Korea is not going to disappear. It's not going to evaporate. You know, when a Biden administration comes in and starts talking about alliance solidarity on North Korea and sanctions and all this other stuff. So it's not that simple that, you know, if you say you're in favor of alliance strength, that that's automatically going to mean it's going to be working smooth as silk with Seoul. Because, you know, again, as we've talked about this whole podcast, the domestic environment has changed quite a bit in South Korea. Right. So in 1980s, this activist believed that the uh, U.S. was obstacle to Korean democracy. So now they probably increasingly believe that the uh, U.S. is now obstacle to inter-Korean relations or any dealing with uh, North Korean issues. So I think that's a danger that uh, we may get into now. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Dr. Shin, Dr. Cha, thank you so much for your time today. It is rare that we get to talk about South Korea and all the implications that are there. So this is a special treat. So thank you both. And next time, we'll talk about the impossible state. Thanks again. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.